Hello and welcome to Rob's Records Podcast, Episode 7, Walk of Life. The 24th of March saw the 50th anniversary of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. They released the Dark Side of the Moon live at Wembley uh, from 1974 album, um, independently from the box set, which I've purchased. This actually sounds a little bit better than the uh, remastered version from 2011. I've listened to the new mix, the 2023 mix, which obviously I covered a couple of shows back. And yeah, I, I can't really... Uh, Tell the difference, unless of course you've got Dolby Atmos, then perhaps that would be where you would get those those differences. There was also another release um, by a band that I used to quite like actually, U2, Songs of Surrender, which is a reimagining of their back catalogue. I had to listen to it, I've heard obviously the little dribs and drabs they keep releasing on Spotify, and to be honest, I, I don't know why they've done it. I, 
well, I can understand from a money perspective, and I think they're doing a residency at Las Vegas, so of course he says all about money when it comes to Bono and the Edge. But yeah, when you when you listen to it, you just think, well, why why have you done that? You don't need to just leave the originals. They are of their time. They are you know classics of of that era. Why why would you want to reimagine it or you know emphasize the lyrics or you know, most of it's just him all being all hushed and whispered and, and all that crap. No, I I listened to the whole thing, the deluxe version on, on Spotify, and I was just disappointed. The other album, which is which I've heard it has been re-recorded, is Dark Side of the Moon by Roger Waters. He's, but I don't know if I want to hear a bitter 80-year-old man redoing uh, Dark Side of the Moon. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, it won't take anything away from the original, but... I mean, is there any any need to do any reissues? I mean, do let me know if you've heard of any re-recordings of, of songs that you've heard. And uh, you can contact me on uh, Facebook, which is facebook.com forward slash Rob's Records Podcast. You can give me a like, give me a follow. That's when I post up the bits and pieces about the show, mixtapes and uh, a shop. It will be appearing some merchandise that you can purchase. Or... Alternately, uh, another meta project is um, Instagram. So I'm on there as the username robsrecord underscore pod. Both of those, you will see that I've posted links to the link tree. So it's l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e forward slash robsrecords. There you'll find the links to all the podcast downloads and how you can do it. And also the merch. The only time I can think of any type of re-recording is when you'd go down Regent Road in Great Yarmouth and there would be a release by, say, the Four Tops. But what they've done is they've re-recorded the the classic from the, the 60s, 70s. With uh, It almost sounds like a karaoke band in the background and it just sounds so synthetic and so just like the whole thing is a, a band in a box or a keyboard and they've got one of the original members singing. It's the only time I can ever think of like these things being re-recorded and, and now they're making a bit of a fashion about it. I read the news today, oh boy. A scientist believes we are just seven years away from achieving immortality. Futurist and computer scientist Ray Kurzweil believes humans living forever could be a possibility by 2030 and it will coincide with the peaking of artificial intelligence. It's a bold prediction, and many say it won't play out, but the American expert has form for making correct estimations, which in their time may have sounded outlandish. He previously accurately predicted about technology advancement, including saying in 1990 that within 10 years a computer could beat the world's best chess player. He also said wireless and handheld devices would become a major part of modern life and even championed the internet when many were sceptical. He now says our AI will reach human levels of intelligence by 2029 and a year later immortality will follow. He told Futurism, 2029 is the consistent date I have predicted for when an AI will pass a valid Turing test and therefore achieve human levels of intelligence. I have set the date 2045 for the singularity, which is when we will multiply our effective intelligence a billion fold by merging with the intelligence we have created. 
Speaking to computer scientist Lex Fridman on a podcast, Kurzweil went on to say humans will be able to advance human life expectancy by more than a year every year and think we can get there by the end of this decade. He also believes we will be kept healthy by nanorobots in our blood and could eventually begin uploading our thoughts and memories to the cloud. Sounds something like Black Mirror. Kurzweil says such advancements are not to be feared and will make humans godlike. I know some of them people already. We're going to be funnier, we're going to be sexier, we're going to be better at expressing loving sentiment, he told Nomia in 2015. Yes, but do you think that may also may be more aggressive, more violent, more war hunger? If I want to access 10,000 computers for two seconds, I can do that wirelessly, he explained, and my computer functional power multiplies, multiplies itself in the cloud 10,000 fold. That's what we're going to do with our neocortex. So I'm walking along and I see Larry Page coming and I'm thinking of something clever to say, but 300 million molecules in my neocortex isn't going to cut it. I need a billion for two seconds. I'll be able to access that in the cloud just like I can multiply the intelligence of my smartphone thousands folds today. I hope that made sense. In 2010, the Boffin reviewed his own predictions over the two previous decades and found that 147 that he'd made in 1990, a total of 115 were entirely correct, a further 12 were essentially correct, and only three were entirely wrong. Kurzweil's incorrect predictions include self-driving cars being implemented worldwide by 2009. Great Scott! A man's entire life has been shattered into pieces after discovering he is genetically related to the mother of his two young children. He explained how he was adopted two minutes after his birth, oh, great memory there, and doesn't know anything about his biological parents as he was part of a closed adoption. However, part of his family history came to light after undergoing tests to see whether he could donate a kidney to his wife of six years. The man said, My wife got sick just after our son was born and now is in need of a kidney transplant. We checked with her relatives and none were a match or a viable donor. It was rare to have a high match as husband and wife and I asked, what does that mean? The man went on to explain how he met his wife eight years ago and he was working away when he was working away from his home, hometown office. The pair exchanged numbers and arranged to meet up every time he travelled to her state with work until he was given an opportunity to transfer his job there permanently. He said, We're related. No, I'm not kidding. I don't know what to do moving forwards, but I know it may be wrong. She is the wife and mother of our kids. Great Scott! Sniffing other people's body odour may be able to help treat social anxiety according to new research. Armpit sweat was taken from volunteers who watched either happy or scary film clips including Mr Bean's Holiday, Sister Act and The Grudge. The samples were then used alongside more traditional mindful therapy to treat social anxiety. The study revealed mindfulness was more effective when combined with sniffing the body odour. The study involved 48 women who suffered from social anxiety, some of whom were exposed to clean air and others to body odour. Patients who completed a mindfulness session whilst exposed to body odour saw a 39% reduction in social anxiety, whilst without body odour there was a 17% reduction in anxiety scores. The researchers believe there is something about human sweat that affects the response to treatment. However, 
Some said more work is needed to confirm the link. Hot, sweaty work, I hope. They thought there might be different effects on treatment depending on the volunteers' emotions whilst perspiring, which is why they got them to watch films to elicit particular feelings. However, the effect was the same whether the sweat giver had been watching a comedy or horror. Lead researcher Eliza Vigna from the Karolinska Institute in Sweden said the team was a little surprised by this. It may be that by simply exposed to the presence of someone else has this effect, but we need to confirm this, she said. Social anxiety is a mental health condition where people worry excessively about social situations. According to the NHS website, there are currently a number of treatments available for the condition, including cognitive behavioural therapy, guided self-help and antidepressant medicines. Now, if you do feel like you do suffer from social anxiety, do speak to your doctor about it. Great Scott! So this thick section I like to call... So new listeners to the show, uh, just to briefly explain, I play the last five seconds of a song and you have to guess what it is. Obviously there's no need for you to send me a message, type it in or anything else, because in a little while you'll, you'll figure out what it is, because I will tell you. Here is the final five seconds of the song, and then what I'll do is I'll leave it a little bit. I'll, I'll give you ten seconds of silence, or you'll have my background music anyway to, uh, to soothe your mind into helpfully thinking of the right song. So here is the first listen. You get two. There you go, did that help? A little bit of time, I think. No clues this time. I've given you the, the time instead of a clue. So here is your second and final listen to the last five seconds. So the smart Alex of you all will understand that this is Heart of Glass by Blondie. You can hear all of the songs that I play on the show, including the 54321 shows, if you just go onto Spotify and search for Robber's Record Podcast. And it contains all of the music that I play on the shows. You just don't have to listen to me in between them all. So here you go. You can have a fantastic playlist. Put it on the background of a party or something.
to previous shows have seen me discussing the MP3, the cassette player, vinyl records. And so today we, or this show, we have finally got to the peak of compact disc. I mean, as in the peak of those particular things. I'm not necessarily saying that compact discs are the better format. I'll go on to that at the end of this segment. So most often attributed to inventor James Russell, the CD evolved from multiple optical mediums and was eventually finalised in 1980 when Sony and Philips created the famed Red Book Standard, which was a series of documents that outlined a 120mm diameter disc bearing music at a resolution of 16 bits or 44.1 kilohertz. The CD, however, wouldn't officially make its way to the greater public until 1983. The first commercially available CD player was the iconic Sony CDP-101 and was first offered by the electrics giant in Japan in October 1982. Born, as Sony states, nearly a hundred years after the first phonographic player. The player made its way to the US and across the globe around six to seven months after this initial debut in 1983 and was priced as high as $1,000. So following an initial offering of around 20 available albums at launch, the CD exploded over the next few years with the CD's unofficial arrival coming with the release of Dire Straits' Brothers in Arms album, which was recorded on the latest digital equipment and spawned a tour sponsored by Philips. Released on CD in May 1985, the hit album become a mu became a musical mainstay and vinyl fans and audiophiles began to purchase CD players in droves to adopt the growing format. By 1988, CD sales eclipsed vinyl and overtook the cassette in 1991. So those around for the CD's rise no doubt remember their first purchase. Mine was U2's Actung Baby, or on my notes here it says Aching Baby, if you're interested. But perhaps just as memorable was the packaging in which it arrived. So compromising 6 inches by 12 inches casings of cardboard and plastic, the so-called long box packaging was several times bigger than necessary. The design was in part an effort to make it easier to flip through the discs on shelving units designed for LPs, but it was also aimed at theft prevention. Long box packaging was estimated, however, to be responsible for creating 18.5 million pounds of extra trash each year, and after much public outcry, was eventually replaced with plastic keeper boxes of the same size that store clerks would unlock. Eventually, the keepers would go away and leave only, uh, only the cellophane wrapped jewel cases we think of today, the magnetized security sticker attached. Then in the late 90s, the CDR, so the Compact Disc Recordable, was released. So that was developed in 1988, and the CDR took flight when PCs and digital recorders began allowing consumers to rip discs, preserving the music in low bitrate files to later be recorded onto CDRs to share. The music quality was low, and it could take as long as eight hours to write a single disc from a PC drive, but with an average cost of about $17 to $20 per CD in the stores, it didn't take long before these discs, readable by any CD player, became a mainstay. So as the first really available way to share digital music without actually paying for it, the CDR was in many ways a stepping stone to the end of the CD's dominance. 
Cash Stereos also soon came only with a CD player and no ability to play cassettes. I mean, pretty much like now you don't have a CD player in your cars when you buy a new one. It's all connectivity via Bluetooth. You may remember seeing people walking around also with little metal cases, which there was their car stereos, and later evolving into just the front panel. And as I was mentioning, these soon adapted to play MP3s, so on one compact disc alone, you could have eight hours of music, or the entire Beatles catalogue if you ripped it at 128 kilobytes per second. Which, as from an earlier show, you would understand that that is an acceptable audio to rip your songs on. So in 1999, just as millennials and the internet itself were coming of age, Napster hit the web and changed the world forever. Allowing a network of global users to easily share music files, the site boomed as the Recording Industry Association of America and other major industry organizations scrambled to catch up and fetch their high dollar lawyers. You may remember, if you're that age, like Metallica, and a few other artists getting together trying to stop all these music sharing platforms which as they say once the genie was out of the bottle it's pretty impossible to stop so even though uh, while Napster was eventually shut in 2001 you had obviously the, the other peer-to-peer -peer sites like LimeWire, uTorrent um, goodness kick-ass torrents many others that you can get with this event CD sales started to slowly fade away. Fast forward to October, October 2001, and Apple releases the iPod, and paired this with Apple's new iTunes music app, the iPod took the world by storm to become the must-have music accessory. So, and also just as striking, iTunes sales became a musical powerhouse for Apple, changing the way people purchase music, and in 2005, iTunes outpaced CD sales in two major physical stores for the first time. It's interesting though, when you think about what, you, what are you purchasing when you buy an MP3? Can you touch it? Can you feed it? Can you hold it? Can you sell it to somebody? No, not really. But with a record, with a cassette tape, you know, you have that thing that you can hold the CD, you can hold it. There's that physical aspect and if you don't want it anymore, you could sell it. I know Music Magpie are probably earning you one penny for your uh, re-recorded versions of the four top CD that you got from Regent Road. But nonetheless, it's a penny. Can't do anything with an MP3 apart from just delete it. You can't, you know, what, what a great thing. They're selling you something that you don't actually own. So Pandora uh, was a project of, called an internet radio service. So this followed like an algorithm that categorized music with hundreds of characteristics to serve listeners music that they liked based upon artists, songs, and simple thumbs up or thumbs down rating. The first major on-demand service, Spotify, came eight years later, and together the two companies helped rewrite the music playbook, offering free, affordable music to anyone online without the need for breaking the law or storing massive, massive amounts of data. Music streaming quickly became an industry giant. In 2014, streaming revenue eclipsed CD sales, and for the first time, it did the same for digital downloads in 2015. So Spotify is the biggest on-demand streamer, 
by leaps and bounds, but has yet to turn a profit 10 years on. And whilst Apple's catch-up service, Apple Music, continues to gain ground, it too appears to be a loss leader for the mighty company. Will streaming ever become a popular vessel for the industry at large? Or is the Napster wound simply too deep to heal? And just what happens if streaming services never make money? The first ever CD was in 1982. That's by a Swedish pop group called ABBA. And the CD was called The Visitors. So which is the better format then? I mean, obviously, it all is down to personal choice. Some people like the cassettes for the nostalgic aspect of it all. Some people like the CDs, the fact that it's crisp, you don't need any crackles. Some people like the warm, crackly bits from records and everything else, but there is nothing worse than having a scratch on your record, especially if it's like one that just materializes very disappointing, especially if you buy a brand new record and it's got a scratch, but you can't be helped. I mean, I always get mine from Amazon. <gasps> Maybe I should go more local, but I tell you what, when you have to return it, there's so much less hassle. You can just put it back in the package, send it off and it's done. You don't have to try and haggle and plead your innocence that the record was already scratched with the owner. So longevity, so CDs theoretically can last up to a hundred years. Vinyl, same, up to 100 years. But the more you play a record, the more deterioration is applied to the record. Because you imagine, if it's spinning round, you have your needle and it's always going to be lightly brushing up against the side. And over a number of years, number of plays, that will slowly, slowly degrade. Cassettes, they last approximately 30 years. So frequency ranges, that basically means a, if, uh, say for example, CDs, they have a frequency range of 22,500 kilohertz or 22.5 kilohertz, I should say. Then what that means is that there is 22,500 samples per second. And so this is the rate of the audio in which it's being produced. For vinyl, there's technically no upper range but it starts at like 20 to 30 hertz. And for cassettes, it only goes up to a maximum of 15 kilohertz. So again, from a frequency point of view, cassettes are very poor. Vinyl, you could say, well, it's demonstrated here that the frequency range is better. The dynamic range is what we're finally gonna talk about. With CDs, it's 90 dB. Vinyl is between 55 and 70 dB in cassettes 60 to 70 db so what that means is each bit of music has a dynamic range meaning the difference between the loudest to the softest part of the music so that's obviously where the dynamic comes from when you get graphic equalizers that's allowing you to basically tinker with each of those kind of dynamic ranges so you can increase your bass your mediums your trebles and you can have thousands of them if you're playing it via a CD, there is that more kind of uh, control over those things you could say, but then if you've got a really good amplifier, you could perhaps do the same with records. Plus finally, there is this argument as well between tapes and vinyl, which is analog, and then you've got digital. So with digital, it's, it's almost kind of up and down like squares, as if you're building a Lego brick house or a turret, let's say, up and down. Analog, is like waves, literally, you know, a wave as it would go up and down. So there is curves to it. So some 
experts will argue that with the wave you will always get that roundedness of the sound and with digital there will always be that element of it no matter how much layering and sampling and everything else that you do there will always be that element where it's not a fully fledged or a fully curved wave oh so there you go that is the difference between the three i don't know um i mean i i listen to stuff on spotify i prefer to obviously put records on as i say it's, it's, it's heartbreaking when you put an old record on and it you get a scratch on it cassette tapes i don't own any anymore i certainly don't well i might have about three or four but i don't certainly have anything to uh, to play them on i did borrow somebody's cassette player once when uh when i lived in london they lent it to me and i thought i had all these tapes and i played them but where i'd left them in my loft and they'd got hot and cold basically the tapes had all warped and so uh yeah no no good to me no good cds i mentioned about the first cd that launched the kind of cd to the mass market and it was brothers in arms by dire straits and that is the song that I've chosen for my Rob's records. And the, well, the song from that album specifically is Walk of Life. Brothers in Arms really recorded in 1985 and the single was released in October 1985. It had previously been released as a B-side before, um, before the album as a B-side to So Far Away, So Far Away, so it was released in advance of uh, the Brothers in Arms album. And the reason I chose uh, Walk of Life, so I would have been seven at the time, and I remember watching it and seeing the video of them playing live along with loads of uh, sports bloopers. And I very distinctly remember like the American football player like spinning around in the air or, or something. But what really kind of triggers the strongest memory from this is uh, when I was obviously little, my dad would drive my mum to work and pick her up. And during the day, there'd be sometimes I'd say, oh, can I come with you? And he'd be like, yes. And I remember one time on the way back, he had the uh, Brothers in Arms album in the car and I put it on and I'd obviously heard Walk of Life before and I put it on, I turned it up quite loud and I put my dad's sunglasses on, had the windows wound down and the music was blaring out really loud as a hot day. I remember us driving from Galston to Great Yarmouth and I was just like, yeah, this is cool, you know, and it was a really nice moment that I shared with my dad. Well, I should say he was driving, I was listening to music and it was just this whole thing of like, wow, we're sharing a moment. And so I really do love listening to Walk of Life. It's just got those, those memories. Incidentally, in the next show, I will be talking about the power of music. There have been a number of um, films about this. There is obviously lots of stuff that you can uh, talk about. I may even try and get an interview with somebody who works in the health profession and their thoughts uh, about music and how it um, plays into a uh, or all the benefits of the, the healing, the, uh, the the healing power of music and whether that's a, a thing or not. So let's take a listen then to Walk of Life by Dire Straits from their 1985 album, Brothers in Arms.
Next up is what I like to call Rob's Wikipedia ripoff. Yes, I still haven't come up with a good name for it. Maybe uh, this will just uh, stick. Maybe I don't know. Mm -hmm. ah, sip a beer there. So yeah, this uh, the artist I'd like to to cover is one that I I think I came across in 2012. It was a film that somebody had made, a documentary film. I knew nothing about it. I'd heard really good things about the movie watched it and it was like wow and because I didn't know anything about the artist and so in some respects I might ruin this for you so fast forward this section if uh, if you don't want to but there is a film called Searching for Sugar Man right so now forward on five minutes and you won't uh, have any ruined surprises so yeah, Rodriguez, he was born in 1942 in Detroit, Michigan, and he was the sixth child of Mexican immigrants' working-class parents. He was named Sexto because he was their sixth son. His father had immigrated to the United States from Mexico in the 1920s. His mother was Native American. That's Sexto's mother, not his father's mother. In 1967, using the name Rod Regres, given by his record label, he released the single I'll Slip Away on a small on this small impact label. He did not record again for three years until he signed with Sussex Records, an offshoot of Buddha Records. He used his preferred professional name Rodriguez after that. He recorded two albums with Sussex, Cold Fact in 1970 and Coming From Reality in 1971. However, both sold few copies in the US and he was quickly dropped by the Sussex label, which itself closed in 1975. At the time he was dropped, he was in the process of recording a third album which has never been released. Rodriguez then decided to quit the music industry in 1976. So although Rodriguez has remained relatively unknown in his home country, by the mid-1970s his albums were starting to gain significant airplay in Australia, Botswana, New Zealand, South Africa and Zimbabwe. When imported copies of his Sussex albums were sold out, an Australian record label, Blue Goose Music, bought the Australian rights to his recordings. Blue Goose released his two albums as well as the compilation album At His Best that featured unreleased recordings from 1973. Can't Get Away, I'll Slip Away, a re-recording of his first single, and Street Boy. At his best went platinum in South Africa, which at one stage was the major disc press source of his music to the rest of the world. Rodriguez was compared to contemporaries such as Bob Dylan and Cat Stevens. 
1998, Rodriguez's signature song, Sugar Man, was covered by the South African rock band Just Ginger and Scottish singer-songwriter Paolo Nattini. In 2002, it was used by disc, jo do disc jockey David Holmes to open his mix album Come Get It, I Got It, gaining Rodriguez more international airplay. Sugarman had previously gained even more fame by having been sampled in the song You're Damn Man in rapper Naz's 2001 album Stillmatic. Rodriguez's albums Cold Fact and Coming From Reality were re-released by Light in the Attic Records in 2009. In 2014, the French Deep House and electric music producer The Avena released a new version of Hate Street Dialogue originally appearing in Rod on, on Rodriguez's album Cold Fact. The new version by The Avena features Rodriguez's vocals, the release charted in France. So, in 2012, the Sundance Film Festival hosted a premiere of the documentary film Searching for Sugar Man by Swedish director Malik Benjijul detailing the efforts of two South African fans to see if his rumoured death was true and, if not, to discover what had become of him. The documentary, produced by Simon Chin and John Batsek, went on to win the World Cinema Special Jury Prize and the Audience Award World Cinema Documentary. So since the cine cinematic release of Searching for Sugar Man in 2012, Rodriguez has experienced a flush of media exposure and fan interest in the United States as well as Europe. He appeared as a musical guest on The Late Show with David Letterman and also on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. The film Searching for Sugar Man strongly implies that Rodriguez may have been cheated out of royalties over the years, significantly by Clarence Avant. This matter is still under investigation and the legal issues are complicated. Rodriguez first expressed indifference to these symbols of success, but he has filed a lawsuit in 2013. In 2015, the lawsuit was reported to have been settled with no amount disclosed. So in addition to concerts in Australia, South Africa and New Zealand, Rodriguez's tour schedule in 2013 included his highly attended US concerts to date, such as a stint at the Beacon Theatre in New York City in April and a spot at the 2014 Sasquatch Music Festival at the Gorge Amphitheatre, as well as other concerts in Europe. He also played on the park stage at the Glastonbury Festival in June 2013. Rodriguez continues to tour the United States and Canada. He headlined a tour in August 2018, ending with his hometown show in Detroit's Garden Theatre. And Rodriguez is reportedly working on new songs for a new album, but no further details are available. That's probably longer than five minutes, so I hope you fast forwarded on those bits. But do check out Searching for Sugar Man. It's a really interesting film. The sad part is, is that the, the, uh, the director of it later went, to, uh, went on to, to kill himself, um, which was you know, such, a, such a shame because the, the documentary itself obviously just catapulted Rodriguez back into the, uh, into the limelight in, in terms of his music and you know all, all of those different bits, helping him get the uh, royalties that were long overdue to him. So yeah, two only two albums released. Um, I have both of them. This uh, song is from Cold Fact. I think it's got a killer bass line. If you're familiar with Rodriguez, you probably already know which song I'm going to mention now I've said about the killer bass line. Or oh, it's a good hook. 
I should say. So the song is I Wonder, but before I play the song, don't forget the next show I will be talking to you about the power of music. So until next time. Don't you?